over about a decade, they noticed the land, you know, next door across the fence looked fantastic, still had tons of wildflowers. And meanwhile, their property was becoming um, covered with thatchy grasses and losing diversity. And so they... In this episode of All Land is Beautiful, I'm joined by Dr. Jamie Marty, a biologist based out of the Sacramento Valley and one of the many insightful and hardworking individuals working to conserve and manage the land, its plants, and wildlife throughout the Northern California region. Jamie's probably best known for publishing a study that scientifically confirmed that cattle grazing in vernal pools, which are seasonal wetlands that host a number of threatened and endangered plant and wildlife species, is not only beneficial, but critical to the protection of biodiversity in these ecosystems. A concept that had long been understood within the ecological community, but had never actually been quantified. She continues her work today with vernal pools, conducting surveys for fairy shrimp and California tiger salamander on behalf of the United States Air Force, as well as a number of nonprofit land trusts throughout the valley, and has picked up a number of other unique and interesting studies and work within other habitats and wildlife as well. We talk about a lot here. Jamie's roots and path to a career in biology and conservation, cattle grazing and its benefits throughout the Northern California landscape, and some unique instances in which native wildlife persists in unlikely environments. My motivation to start this podcast is actually rooted in a conversation I had with Jamie about a year ago. It's based in this idea that I will continue to try and convey throughout this podcast, that conservation which is the protection of our wild places and the things that live in it, is far more nuanced than just setting aside land and leaving it alone. There are far too many variables at work and we have to think different and be creative in an ever-changing environment. So I think, so the first thing I would love to just know is just a little bit about um, where you grew up and what you enjoyed doing, Mm -hmm. you know, as your younger self. Yeah, so I grew up in Tacoma, Washington, and you know, pretty much born and raised. And I was thinking about this, and I really didn't have much of a connection to, like, a an outright connection to um, biology or ecology. Mm-hmm. Growing up, I did live in a neighborhood that was surrounded by marshland, mm-hmm. and it's no longer uh, mm-hmm. marshland; it's all developed. But at that time, you know, our parents would just, you know, I guess Gen Xers, our parents just like say kicked you out of the house and don't come back till it's dark and we just explored the marshlands and I wasn't really into critters or plants or anything it was just more playing around outside Mm -hmm. um and my family also we went camping usually in very you know um developed campgrounds but every year we would have pitching uh campgrounds of america right yeah that's that's the plug (laughs) (laughs) right so we always you know we had our camper and we started in tents and then my parents bought this camper and yeah it was a lot of fun um always loved being outdoors and just uh spending time with my family outdoors versus you know being inside all the time so yeah that definitely was a and and you know being from the pacific northwest that's a gorgeous area you know waking up every day and seeing mount rainier and Mm -hmm. yeah that's definitely a landscape to grow up on and get you excited it was obviously what's there is that there's the foundation of where you are today right but it definitely helps living in a landscape that get the connects you know connects with you early on yeah right um yeah so I guess you know so I I had a question um about if there was a specific moment that Mm. now as we come back as we kind of pull it into into this into more of the 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 the, this conversation around conservation and biology it sounds like maybe it was more of a of a build-up to to getting into this world or was there a moment or yeah so now start taking me into the transition into grown up grown up Jamie yeah um, yeah in this world I'm not sure that there is a grown up Jamie but I'm <laughs> um, working on it yeah so I um it's a little bit of a backstory because when I was in when I wanted to go to college there wasn't a lot of pressure or um 
I'll say encouragement to go to college for me. Mm -hmm. It was, if you can find a way to do it, great. Mm -hmm. um, and the way that I decided to do that was to get an Air Force ROTC scholarship out of high school. So I applied in my junior year, got the scholarship, and I was like, okay, I guess I'm going into the Air Force. There we go. Yeah, so they paid for my, all of my schooling, which was great. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, I was in ROTC the entire time I was in college. And I stayed local. I stayed at the University of Puget Sound. Okay. And um, a couple years into that, I had a major, uh, major proper, who <laughs> was my one of my ROTC instructors that was really into aircraft maintenance. And mm. that, that was her job when she was in the Air Force. And I just fell in love with her stories, and it sounded like a challenging, really exciting job. So that's what I decided I wanted to do. Mm. And ended up getting my undergrad degree from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in aviation management. Wow. Yeah. So. Well, I got a degree in kinesiology, so. <laughs> okay, so there you go. <laughs> Who knows where you're going to yeah. end up, right? Yep. Uh, and I had taken a lot of engineering. I was in in engineering major before that so I'd taken wow. a bunch of science courses already sure um, a lot of the yeah a lot of the base requirements were exactly already met there. yeah so um when I got into the air force I um started off in aircraft maintenance I pretty quickly realized it was great very challenging I enjoyed the problem solving part of it mm -hmm. um you know fixing these big aircraft and getting them back up into sure. the air and learning about the mechanics and all of that but it I also always had these side jobs doing mm. environmental work okay. so I was the hazardous waste manager for our squadron and I was you know working on recycling mm. you know in the air force I was always doing these like side duties and I eventually ended up in Germany where I was, uh, I finally was put into the civil engineer squadron, which is where all of that activity occurs. Okay. And they also do the natural resources management in huh. the civil engineer squadron. Someone's got to do it. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> so that's where we'll put it. Yeah. And um, being with it, I was in an office full of German nationals. And so I just started absorbing their love for their natural resources, which are, mm you know, they don't have a lot and mm -hmm. they're all like, you know, they're forests or fourth and fifth generation, you know, because they've been chopped down and burned sure. and, you know, maimed. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they're very, you know, they're very, very uh, protective of their natural resources and had some very, you know, forward looking programs. And so I became very interested in that. Mm -hmm. So getting to that point, because it mm -hmm. very much was a point mm -hmm. uh, or an actual event that made me decide what I wanted to do and that was they sent me to San Antonio to go to a conference on a, you know just an environmental conference sure. and I was sitting in this talk where a consultant was talking about some work they were doing on an army post where they were managing desert tortoise nesting habitat mm -hmm. and helping the army um, still to conduct their activity so that it didn't harm the desert tortoises sure. and it was mind-blowing that there was actually a job mm -hmm. that somebody had to do this and I like right there I was like I don't care what it takes but that's what I want to do I want to figure out ways to help you know the military get their work done but sure. at the same time protect the resources the natural resources that we care about and so that started me on, you know, I've got to go back to school because the management mm -hmm. undergrad yeah. degree <laughs> is going to help me. <laughs> so, yeah, so I left the Air Force active duty and joined the reserves, okay. ended up here in California. Got it. And, um, yeah, and I started pursuing graduate programs, um, ended up at UC Davis. Uh, I did AmeriCorps for a year mm -hmm. because I needed practical experience. Sure. I had none at that yeah. point. And was super lucky to become involved with the Yolo County RCD oh, wow. um, and working with John Anderson on grassland restoration projects. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so and a lot of the people that I worked with while I was in AmeriCorps are still good friends and, you know, colleagues, which is really very cool. That is very cool. So, the, so and, and apologies. So I think so you um, were, you got your PhD in... Restoration Ecology. Restoration Ecology from UC Davis. Yes. Is that correct? Yep. And so then, so there's the new trajectory point mm -hmm. for 
Jamie, Jamie Marty, PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, 2.0. 2.0. What was, so what, so, okay, so, um, still in the reserves in the, in, for the Air mm-hmm. Force. Um, so, but, so now what's the, what was your first position coming out with, uh, with the PhD? Yeah, so I, um, had said to folks when I was in grad school that my ideal job would be a job where I got to actually do preserve management and, mm-hmm. um, and, TNC was flying a position for their grassland ecologist down at the Cosumnes River Preserve. Awesome. And I still hadn't finished my degree. I hadn't written up my dissertation, and I still had one more year of data collection to do on my research project mm-hmm. when that position came out. But I thought, oh, this is a great opportunity to at least get experience applying sure. and interviewing. And, and of course, um, they offered me the job. <laughs> mm-hmm. I freaked out. <laughs> yeah, a little, a little bit of imposter syndrome. Yeah, well, not that. I was more like I fear that if I start take if I take that job, I won't ever finish mm. my PhD. Got it. And so I called my major professor, and and he just said, "You will. You know, you're yeah. you're not that type." And it took me another two years after I started the job with the Nature Conservancy okay. to finish to you know to finally write my dissertation and graduate. Sure. Um, but yeah, it it is it yeah I got it done. Um, yeah, so that job was grassland ecologist at uh, the Cosumnes River Preserve working for TNC. Yeah, which the Nature Conservancy, for those who don't right. know what TNC is, right? Yeah, so um, what, an, what an awesome first opportunity yeah. um, to work because, again, I think the hard part with a podcast, of course, is conveying um, landscape because mm-hmm. uh, there are, of course, there's sounds associated with a landscape, but um, it's a little different uh, talking about it. But of course, the Cosumnes River Preserve and just the Cosumnes River alone, um, I, certainly something I, I plan and hope to speak to a number of people about okay. because the only you know undammed or, or you know un, undammed river on the west slope of the of the Sierra Nevada, and just what that means ecologically, right and you know, just sort of serving as this this baseline for you know, t- as we mentioned, you know, to provide a pulse on what's going on on a landscape level. I think the again, j- wow, just wow, right? What an awesome opportunity! And I and I think too, sounds like I think when you got in there, that was, you know, the Cosumnes had been a big priority for the Nature Conservancy, right. kind of leading. I think maybe where you came in on sort of the tail end of the acquisition moment or you know there I think there right there was a lot of heavy um there was a big initiative in their sort of 80s and 90s I think um for really honing in and trying to protect the land as far as buying it and conservation easements um of course that legacy continues on through management Um, but I think so it sounds like you might have come in at a really awesome time kind of still when there was a lot of really great energy around that area Definitely, yeah. The <clears throat> excuse me. The focus in the eighties and nineties was really right around the river, protecting the lands, um, the farm. There was a, a lot of agricultural land around the actual river basin mm-hmm. that and and stream bed that needed to be protected in order to allow the river to overflow its banks and do sure. all those wonderful things in the floodplain. Mm-hmm. Um, and then. By the time I started, they had started expanding into the grasslands mm. uh, and protecting vernal pools and the and thinking more watershed scale sure. protection. So yeah, it was a remarkable time. Yeah. Um, lots of land being protected, lots of um, cool opportunities to do monitoring and figure out management. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that it was super fun. Yeah, it's definitely. It's, I mean. It, there's a reason it's called the Nature Conservancy, right? I mean, but yeah, <laughs> so so yeah. amazing. I mean, yeah, just yeah, to be on and to have an organization on it that operates on an international scale, be focused on a yeah on a local on an area that's local to you. That, that's pretty cool. Yep, for sure. Um, well, that's great. So then I'm curious. So I know. So today, you 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 have your own consult. You know, you have, we have Jamie Marty Ecological Consulting. So what was the transition from going from working organiza- you know, for an organization to, to going out on your own? Yeah, so I um, have always loved field work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just I'm happiest when I'm out in the field exploring and 
because every day you find something new and magical. Mm -hmm. And I, I just had the sense of wonder of doing field work. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't have to be, you know, handling tiger salamanders or something, you know, that you know is going to be fun, but even just weed eating or driving around on a ranch, you're going to mm -hmm. find something really interesting that's going to make your day. So sure. I, I get a, I, I've always known that about myself. And as I moved up in TNC, as with, you know, more, most organizations, I moved out of the field. Um, and I noticed, you know, that um, it was having an impact on my enjoyment of sure. the job. And so I left TNC, I was with TNC for 12 years, okay. and I left there to work for another consulting firm um, that I knew the owner and he promised that, you know, I would be out in the field a lot, which I definitely was, but it just wasn't a good fit for me. Mm -hmm. um, it was a really important uh, transition point, though, because I never would have gone straight from TNC to, you know, opening. To just going solo. Yeah, because yeah. It, there were so many scary things. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah there And there still are, but uh, once you... I felt at that point I was sort of I needed to do something different and after I left that um, firm I started getting calls from people saying mm. hey I heard that you know you're doing I was just I, I hadn't figured out what I was going to do if I was going to work for another organization or um, but people started contacting me and I started sure. you know collecting all these small contracts mm -hmm. and working with uh, you know fun people and after a few months, I thought, well, gee, I can probably do this, you mm -hmm. know, um, and yeah, and, and it's just grown from there. So it's, uh, it, it's not scary yeah. <laughs> as it was back then. Sure. And yeah, and now it's been 10 years, I think. It's wow. kind of crazy to think, but yeah. yeah. Very cool. Um, well, again, so, and so the reason, again, I was really excited to, to speak with you specifically and, you know, I think so appreciative of you taking the time to talk with me it was um what's so unique about having of being solo and you know getting to you know be piecing these contracts together is i think of course you gotta gotta pay the bills mm -hmm. but that gives you the flexibility to really work on things you want to work on right um and i've you know in, in talking we've you know i've heard of some of the projects that you're involved with and um and it's really kind of on a, it's on a, maybe not a statewide scale, but at least, you know, a Northern California scale. And so I would just, if you could just really briefly, I'm just curious. Um, so give me just a quick list of some of the, you know, sort of geographically where, where you're operating and, and what your focus is. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess we can start in the North part of the state. So I, um, back with the nature conservancy mm -hmm. doing some contract work for them, up at the Vina Plains Preserve and okay. uh, Dye Creek Preserves. Okay. Which, give, give, me a, give me a reference. North point. of Chico. Okay, yeah. perfect. Yeah. Yep, so um, amazing landscapes. When I was working for TNC, I tried to spend as much time up there as I mm -hmm. could. And wonderful people working on those projects mm -hmm. that I really, um, you know, they have a great vision for the project. So I've been doing, um, writing monitoring plans and now grazing management plans for them trying to figure out how to dial in the grazing management. The great thing about, um, Vina Plains actually for me was that one of the very first research projects that I did when I worked for TNC was looking at fire effects on vernal pools. And Vina Plains was one of those sites where I had set up some research plots. And so this, you know, it was sort of coming full circle and I was able to go back to those plots and do some follow-up monitoring just to see what's happened and changed over 20 years. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's a great set of projects, um, that I've had the opportunity to work on. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I, uh, I do some work in, um, I, a lot of the work that I do is with the Air Force still. So yeah. I was, um, in the reserves, I retired from, um, the reserves in 2013 mm -hmm. and, uh, and I, but I, because I understand, you know, the bases, yeah, the world, it's yeah. easier for me to plug in. Sure. Um, and so I do work at Beale Air Force Base, mm -hmm. um, mo mainly associated with wetlands and fire, um, okay. projects and, um, and then 
moving south, I do a lot of work with the Wildlife Heritage Foundation. Mm -hmm. And so they have some preserves in the Lincoln area. Mm -hmm. um, the Air Force also has some uh, property in that area. So I've been doing some field work, um, fairy shrimp sampling, western spadefoot toad work, mm -hmm. and pollinator work. Mm -hmm. um, and then I uh, and I also have a grazing study set up at the Rockwell Ranch in Lincoln, the classic, you know, fence cows out of pools and see what happens. Sure. Um, so that's been going on for, I think, four or five years okay. there. And then um, in the Sacramento area, I've been working with the Sac Sacramento Valley Conservancy, um, doing vernal pool work on properties and um, helping to... Um, do baseline documentation of conservation easement lands mm -hmm. and um, just helping to you know sort of protect um, the habitat in this area where I live yeah yeah a little, and, little uh, personal investment right? exactly um, and then uh, I do Solano County is a big hot spot for me I do a lot of work at Travis Air Force Base that's mm -hmm. where I did my reserve duty so mm -hmm. and and I was probably the only Air Force officer that was you know, working as an ecologist while I was in the Air Force, um, there was a need there to help them with their endangered species and wetlands issues. And so I filled that role for the years that I was a reservist. And then it was an easy transition once I left the reserves yeah. to just keep working out there. And so I've done um, a lot of work associated with California tiger salamander movement across the airfield and helping them, you know, sort of back to that desert tortoise um, story, you know, helping them to make sure it's like assisted migration, making sure that the sure. salamanders make it across between the Jepson Prairie and, you know, mm -hmm. the base. And, uh, and then a number of other projects out there. Um, and then I started expanding um, down into the San Joaquin Valley. I'm the my company is a land manager for a project. It's a solar mitigation mm. project just south of Los Banos. Um, set up for San Joaquin Kip Fox, uh, Swainson's Hawks, mm -hmm. Tiger Salamanders. And so I um, do the management um, on that property mm -hmm. and the monitoring, all of the monitoring. And uh, I've been working with the Center for Natural Lands Management for mm -hmm. a number of years doing pond surveys for shrimp and salamanders down in the Pinoch Valley, which is, okay. I'm going to say, one of my favorite places in the mm. entire state. It is just amazing. Wow. I love going down there. Um, and just recently, in the last few years, I've started working in the Scotts Valley area. There was a mitigation project, a housing mitigation project, mm -hmm. with some very, very rare plants. Like, uh, this is the only location that they are present sure. in the world in the world yeah. yeah yeah and so just um and we we just finished um the first year of a restoration where um university of california berkeley botanical gardens grew out some seeds from mm -hmm. one of the rare plants polygonum hickmanii or um scotts valley polygonum okay. and we restored or put um they they live on ro uh, rock outcrops and okay. so very focused habitat restoration sure tiny tiny plants uh <laughs> that you like actually have to mark with nails to be able to find them again it's that kind of thing yeah very tedious but super rewarding and so this year we were able to outplant a bunch of the seeds uh to some of the sites where they had occurred historically and had wow. just major success it was a great year for it with all the rainfall that we got yeah. And so we were able to, I don't even know how many times, we, we had tens of thousands of new seedlings that recruited. And wow. there were only, maybe, there are only about 150 or 200 plants left in the wild wow. before that. So, yeah, that's been super fun. Mm -hmm. uh, hands and knees, you know, focused monitoring and management using little, you know, nail clipper scissors to <laughs> clip away the weeds around them. But super fun. So, yeah, that's just kind of the scope of, you yeah. know, and I have other projects that I do, but those are sort of the big ones. From this point on, our conversation shifts away from Jamie's background and looks more towards management of land. This dialogue is under the pretense that unless you live in a national park, you live on an altered landscape. That means it's been farmed, graded, dug up at some point. Maybe all the trees were once cut down or most of the plants and grasses around you are introduced species. If you're a pessimist, this could be pretty bleak. 
but this is nothing that we can change. It's already happened. We can, however, adapt and improve upon to do better. The rest of my conversation goes on to explore some specific examples with Jamie. Starting off with my move from San Diego to Sacramento several years ago in my crash course in cattle grazing. The big one for me, um, again, coming from San Diego, moving up to Sacramento, is when I was out driving around or enjoying uh, a regional park, um, there were no cows. Uh, I think if you, you know, uh, politics and opinions aside, uh, you know, especially with, you know, cows are bad. Mm -hmm. They're, uh, right, they're resource heavy. They're kind of a, a burden on our environment. But then I move up to Sacramento, specifically working on vernal pool preserves. And here I come to find out that cattle grazing is kind of our main tool we have to protect the native and endangered and threatened species that still have held on mm -hmm. to this landscape. Right, again, I think of someone driving on 80 through the valley and seeing, you know, big wide open grasslands and, and woodlands and seeing cows on it mm -hmm. and thinking, that's not, they shouldn't be there. You know, they're all, they're, they're extracting from our landscape, they're not putting into it. I think, you know, just to kind of like transitioning into this com this kind of next aspect of the conversation is, if you could, wor working lands and kind of where, you know, where grazing, I guess in this context, and, and conservation come, come together, because they are benefiting off one another. Uh, can, you, I know, can you speak to that a little sure, bit? Sure, yeah. I, um... I think about that a lot. And when I drive through a landscape and I see cows in the grasslands, in the oak woodlands, I think they're protecting that mm -hmm. habitat. I think we all take for granted that these private lands that form, you know, the matrix of our um, state are, I mean, these are mostly private lands that are mm -hmm. grazed. Uh, they're protected because they are grazed. They're mm -hmm. used for grazing and have been for centuries. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I had a very similar perspective on grazing when I was in grad school, um, in terms of it can't be good. Like mm -hmm. it's having all of these negative impacts. And so my research in grad school, and then once I started working with TNC became very focused on that issue like mm -hmm. what are we losing because mm -hmm. we're grazing it what are we gaining from grazing and so I just did I, I became a scientist because I love doing experiments and mm -hmm. so I love being able to answer questions with science mm -hmm. and that was a big one and mm -hmm. it was a tough one to yeah. try to you know grapple with especially for sensitive resources like you're talking about vernal pools and rare plant populations um, and I started fencing things off and mm -hmm. monitoring inside and outside the grazing exclosures and pretty much um, I expected to see winners and losers, you know, mm -hmm. especially with the vernal pool experiments when I first started. I thought grazing can't be good for everything, mm -hmm. right? But what I found was a pretty big degradation in habitat values when grazing was removed. Mm -hmm. And a, a part of that is the if it's not broke you know if it ain't broke don't fix it type deal it's like if sure. you go to a property and see tons of wildflowers and it just looks amazing to you mm -hmm. and cattle are grazing it why in the world would you want to remove the cattle mm -hmm. right so it was kind of that um notion but it was also you know i wanted to dig into the details of the the little plants and the shrimp and the salamanders that were in these pools and figure mm -hmm. out what impacts grazing was having and grazing was having positive impacts on um their on them and um, and i think a lot of that is because the species that are here today in all of these landscapes that have been grazed have a history of grazing are adapted to that grazing like they've they that's all they know and the ones that were sensitive to grazing were probably lost a long time ago or are in these areas that only periodically get grazed. Sure. Um, so I think that uh, 
like I said, knowing what I know, and it, it's not just vernal grazing and vernal pools, but a lot of the animal species that I work with, tiger salamanders, burrowing owls, San Joaquin kit fox, they all benefit from having a landscape grazed. They can't tolerate tall grasses. Uh, when you remove grazing, what you get is a lot of thatch and you get in these annual, they're annual grasslands in the valley. You get a lot of thatch, you get a lot of tall vegetation. And most of these species, you know, evolved in uh, grasslands that had a lot less vegetation, didn't have all of these European annual grasses growing. And so they just, they suffer, they go sure. away if you remove yeah. grazing. Yeah, right, I think of the, the big key thing, in, and again, this is just, Again, when you're just driving by these these properties and, and you don't get to sort of, I think, you know, you don't get to benefit from having this intimate experience that people like, by you know, that biologists and, and land trust, you know, conservationists get to have is that, you know, most people don't know that when you're looking out in a grassy field, you know, just pick any grassy field in the, in the valley, right? Mm -hmm. It's mostly not native annual grass species, as, right. as you mentioned, right? And so, not native plants, we don't have any native wildlife to manage that, that, that level of grass that's growing, right? And so at least, you know, with, we're talking about cows, but other livestock as well, right? These introduced, you know, right, non-native plant, non-native animal who eats the non-native mm -hmm. plant to allow Nat right, both native uh, and plant and wildlife species to to thrive, as you mentioned. And, and again, it's talk about like a, right, like a mind blown moment, at least for me. To, but I think for for most people is that that's a it's a it's a pretty big thing mm -hmm. to to come to terms with. And you'd mentioned leading that study on cattle grazing and impacting vernal pools. And I think the important thing to call out is that um, you wrote the study that is now, I mean, you were part of the study that is referenced when people talk about, you know, the justification for grazing on, on a landscape. I don't know if you had, if there's any other thoughts there. Well, I, what I'll say is getting back to my favorite statement that I'm just quantifying mm -hmm. the obvious. That's very much what I felt like I was doing with that study because for years, I mean, the the first study of that was up at Vina Plains Preserve when the Nature Conservancy bought um, the property. Mm -hmm. They immediately removed grazing from mm -hmm. the, you know, from the pastures because it, grazing, grazing yeah, is bad. it was bad for vernal pools, yeah. right? And they were trying to protect them, and so over about a decade, they noticed the land, you know, next door across the fence mm. looked fantastic still mm -hmm. had tons of wildflowers and meanwhile their property was becoming um covered with thatchy grasses yeah. and losing diversity and so they finally you know put grazing back on the land mm -hmm. and just realized that uh for some of the plants that they were trying to protect the ones that grow during the summertime in mm -hmm. in the larger playa vernal pools that they just needed to remove the cattle before they started to flower and mm -hmm. so they changed the grazing regime and were able to accommodate all of the you know the, the grazing and the conservation that they needed to do for that property so uh you know you can manage cattle differently mm -hmm. in order to achieve your outcomes and so that was when i started working at the Cosumnes preserve um one of the stories i had just heard and mm -hmm. most of the ecologists that uh, vernal pool ecologists that I associated with, they were saying, yeah, of course, grazing is good for cattle or, you know, is good for um, vernal pools. You know, mm -hmm. we, we see this every time we go out in the field where cattle are removed, we see the degradation of the landscape and certain plants start to disappear. And you might even see pools disappear completely mm -hmm. yeah. because they become so overgrown. Mm -hmm. And so that was really a trigger for me to start I, I felt like we kept saying that, but people weren't mm. listening because there was no good science behind it. Sure. And so the opportunity at the preserve was um, really one where the Nature Conservancy had purchased a 12,000 plus acre ranch mm -hmm. out in East Sacramento County. And 
they used funding from the resources, Natural Resources Conservation Service, or NRCS, mm -hmm. and attached to that program funding was a requirement to change, to restore the vernal pools mm -hmm. on the property. Mm -hmm. And so they had hired a consultant to um, help them, you know, get the funding, and the consultant went to Rancho Seco, which is a property next door, mm -hmm. um, which was ungrazed, and they compared pools at Rancho Seco to the pools on the preserve and said, oh, well, there's a lot more mosquito larva mm -hmm. um, in the the uh, grazed pools. Mm -hmm. So if you remove grazing or change the grazing regime, you'll restore the pools. I'm using scare quotes right now. Yeah. <laughs> restore. Yeah. Um, and so that's what was going to happen. Um, they were going to, from this beautiful preserve or property that was being protected because it had these amazing vernal pools, they were going to remove grazing mm -hmm. from that. Not completely, but for basically most of the season. Sure. And so that's when I joined TNC and I said, wait a second, can we do an experiment yeah. first to see what might happen? Yeah. And so that's what we did. We set up a bunch of grazing exposures and tested different seasons of grazing. And ultimately it turned out that the, you know, business as usual historic grazing regime was the one that maintained the highest diversity. It maintained the, um, the hydrology of the pools. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, just, it was, Again, quantifying sure. what most ecologists would tell you would happen, mm -hmm. um, but it was important to get that published. And so yeah. I worked very hard for the first few years to make sure that that message got out. As soon as I started seeing the results, I was like, oh my gosh, we got to get this published. And yeah. it was basically the quickest publication I've ever <laughs> wow. gotten through. Because every, well, yeah, everyone was like, yeah, we all know this thing yeah. needs to go through, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. I don't oh, know. Maybe, um, but it was, you know, it was novel and it was, well, you know, I felt like the study was set up well too. So it was yeah. easy to see that the statistics were, you know, good and all the randomization had occurred and all that stuff. So it was solid. Um, and, and what I will say is that I've never really stopped conducting that experiment because mm. I feel like that was one place in the valley where, you know, that had a certain grazing history and a certain mm -hmm. type of vernal pool. Does this translate everywhere that there are vernal pools? And so sure. I've conducted that study multiple times at other sites and I keep getting the same result, mm -hmm. but somewhere somebody's going to get a different result. And that's sure. what science is all about. I would love for somebody to do that study in some place and show that it's wrong. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and I, I think that in, at higher elevations, sure. not, you know, valley vernal pools, I know that with species like perennial species tend to, um, be, uh, grazed preferentially by cattle. Mm -hmm. And so in some cases you can really, if you have a sensitive oryngium or, you know, coyote thistle or something mm -hmm. like that, or other, uh, perennial plant in a pool, you can do some damage to those populations. And um, some folks had shown that in up in the Modoc Plateau area Got that it. cattle grazing at the wrong time can have some negative impacts. Sure. And that's what we need to know. We need to know the nuance, not just grazing is good or bad. It's all about the management. Yeah. Um, and I think, and of course, that'll be in, you know, more episodes to come as well will be uh, that you know, it hasn't been said uh, explicitly at this point, but is that um, you know, ranchers, cattle ranchers, but really, I mean, any anyone who's grazing livestock are in their own capacity are, are conservationists, mm -hmm. right? So I think that that's a really interesting, you know, that'll be a very interesting topic to explore further. Um, the other thing I think, though, I think a really big point to, to sort of push in is I've, I want to talk through a couple more examples with you is, is the nuanced aspect of all this which inherently makes it really challenging because i mean but it's also it's this is nature this is the world you know one valley to the next is is a little different right mm -hmm. you know you're gonna have different conditions and um we need to react and respond differently in which and again in, in sort of trying to convey this this message of of land trusts and biologists is you know we are, and, and these, those people are the folks who are, you know, are, are in tune to those unique local dynamics that are going on there. And um, it's a really exciting and very interesting thing to, to explore and to discuss. 
at least I, at least I think so, mm-hmm. which is why we're talking about it today. Um, and so getting into that a little bit more as far as the, the nuance aspect of it, I think it's just really interesting to talk through. I think this speaks to, again, sort of your pulse on, on different areas and just the different unique experiences you've had is um, I really enjoyed uh, when we had previously talked about the, some of your preserve management down in Los Banos. Mm-hmm. Um, because I've, right, uh, I would say uh, Los Banos for, mo- for most folks is as a drive-by place <laughs> off five, right? Mm-hmm. You know, going from uh, Northern California to Southern California. Um, it's an incredibly uh, altered landscape. It's very agriculturally heavy, mm-hmm. you know, at least portions of it. Um, I think this is the, I think this is in the reference to the, um, the solar project mitigation preserve, but, um, you had, we had talked through how you started taking over management of this property and you had this, um, pretty dense stand of, I think it was tamarisk, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, for anyone in, in this line of work, big, big, big no, no. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something if we're going to get rid of anything or do anything, right. you should start there and, and at least get rid of that. Um, but then there you are and you spot a Swainson's hawk nest, which is a protected bird species, mm-hmm. um, very, you know, very specific to the Central Valley, right? Um, and, uh, you know, p- paying, you know, uh, perspective shift, well, we can't go in and cut down th- this vegetation that, a, right. that an endangered species is using, um, if you could, if you could just to maybe provide a little more context and kind of, yeah, your, the thought again, right. I think this, it connects to, you know, we've have quantifying that the dynamic of cows on a property, but again, here we are a totally non-native species, mm-hmm. but yet we have a native species benefiting up from it. Right. Um, we probably shouldn't go about it the same way we would. Yeah. I think it speaks to our you know, wanting to make everything black and white, non-native is bad, native is good. And I've had to blur those lines so many times. That was one of them where, yeah, clearly tamarisk is awful. Um, but this is a, this is tree tamarisk. So it's ethyl tamarisk and it's, um, not, so it's not as invasive as the other species. And it, it's, it forms these trees and these have been growing there for you know 30 to 50 years and so they're very heritage tamarisk yeah exactly exactly (laughs) and they're and in this you know altered landscape there are no other native trees growing they're just they've died off um because groundwater pumping i mean you name it climate change whatever but the creek channels just aren't they don't have any large trees so the the eucalyptus that's planted, you know, was planted historically that's still in some of these areas. And then the tamarisk are serving as these large trees for species like Swainson's hawks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that when, when I first started working on that project, there was a huge, you know, big line item in the management plan and budget for removing all of the tamarisk from the property that was being preserved. And, so there was that tree, which is an obvious one. Well, you're not going to cut that tree down because Swainson's hawks come back to the same tree year after year. And so we're not going to cut down that tree. So maybe we think about planting other trees that by the time they grow up, you know, maybe that um, tamarisk is going to die off sure. and they can replace it with, you know, we can replace it with natives. But I even have my reservations about the amount of input that it would take to get native trees to grow mm-hmm. at this site with the, you know, depleted groundwater and la- lack of functional hydrology in the creek. Sure. Um, but there's also this large three-acre uh, bramble of tamarisk, the same species of tamarisk, but it's just continued to grow stems and mm-hmm. it's it is just a thicket. Mm-hmm. And that was supposed to come out, and I started. Um, we put up some camera traps to monitor for kit foxes and Mm. noticed that there was a lot of wildlife associated with, and it is the only structure in this landscape. And so thinking about uh, pallid bats, you know, we Mm. were catching on our cameras coming and there are owls and there are just all kinds. And then there are also, you know, non-native pigs that are probably seeking cover. Um, so it's, it's really, um, I wasn't, convinced that removing the tamarisk was the best thing for 
that site. And so, again, we were able to get the agencies to agree that we could study what is out there and what's sure. using it um, before making any decisions about how, you know, whether we remove it completely or we just thin the tamarisk to keep some structure. But it started me thinking about, you know, native and non-native species in a different context, thinking about the function of the landscape. And I think that's really, you know, when I started as a restoration ecologist, it was all about we have to plant specific native species out in the landscape and not necessarily thinking about the impacts that our activities, even if they're, po you know, we presume... Completely well yeah, intentioned, right? right? That they're having on these native habitats and the species that use the, you know, landscape. And so, yeah, that was a big... Um, it was a, a little bit of a fight with the agencies to explain why we wanted to keep tamarisk at the site, but ultimately it's common sense, right? Yeah. Um, and so often that's what I come back to is common sense and um, thinking about the larger picture. And I think that as a biologist wandering around the landscape doing the monitoring that I do, that's I have that perspective because I see the same thing playing out at a number of different sites and I'm able to connect those dots. Yeah. And, um, and I love that about yeah. my job and about what I get to do and how I can help, you know, manage these sites better, sure. um, with that perspective. Yeah. And yeah. educate, sorry, I'm just going to no, mention no. that a huge part of my job too is to educate <laughs> people uh, yeah. about you know and I feel like that's you know part of the research arm of what I do is making sure that publications are out there so people can use good science mm -hmm. to support their decision making but also just like challenging you know I know we've had some of those conversations about challenging our perspectives um, our you know preconceived notions about native mm -hmm. versus non-native species and the role that they play in the landscape um, yeah yeah and I Again, I'll say right another motivation and really drive to, to start talking to people about this kind of about these topics um, is that that message and that that education part and we we operate a little bit it's sort of an exclusive you know it's sort of our world you know right it, not to say that we're not inviting anyone who wants to be who wants to come in and take a peek but. It, it's a hard, but it, it's also, there's just inherently, there's just kind of a disconnect between the people, the people of biology and, and conservation, um, in a, again, on these sort of more private sort of intermediate landscape, mm -hmm. um, where the, where the, the way for the, the opportunity for the public to engage is just not quite as obvious. Um, and I will say having worked for land trusts, um, I see that at one of our, hugest challenges is communicating these stories um it, it is hard to get someone excited i think about a about tamarisk or about a property that's being protected that they can't necessarily go and experience mm -hmm. or have a have a direct benefit from right um but my hope my goal is that in telling some of these there is something to be said about the story and i think what's kind of nice at least to begin about I, I don't feel like I need to drive to Los Banos to see this this patch of tamarisk out there but um it, it is it, it's a it's unique but it's also I think it's a great it, it also gives us perspective within the area that that we're living in and I think it's kind of interesting it's sort of a it has a it has both dark and positive messages behind it because mm -hmm. like you already mentioned um there's no native vegetation there's no native trees out there because of the heavy impacts um which again you know that for another podcast another <laughs> uh, whole other series of podcasts um but also the hope and the positive the positivity of that that you had that yet you still have all of this wildlife activity mm -hmm. in that area which i think you know right there's a lot of doom and gloom in the world right mm -hmm. in but to be able to sort of celebrate, uh, again, I'm not going to call it a success because it's not an ideal situation. Um, but yet here we still, again, we still have these, um, these at risk species who are, you know, in their own way, you know, thri thriving on, on a landscape that maybe suggests otherwise that there aren't 
there isn't hawks and, and foxes and right. and other it live that are that are actually being able to utilize that space. Um, one other one I wanted to talk through really briefly was um, another thing we had just it's still on that on the topic of non-native versus native was um, some of your work with pollinators. Right. And we had talked through, it was just so funny because when we had last spoken, I was sort of ramping up into this semi-decent sized non-native species treatment on a preserve, uh, presumably uh, yellow star thistle, mm -hmm. um, which again, non-native, bad, <laughs> right? The, the, uh, in, a, in a, right, looking at a landscape that otherwise pretty much has nothing else, you know, has no other yellow star on it. Um, but then again, you know, perspective shift, right, you know, coming from, from you shedding light in a way that I had not thought of was, um, we're looking at yellow star thistle here, which again, nasty plant, but it's a, it's a summer flowering plant. And we don't have a lot of summer flowering plants, especially in our exposed grasslands. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's just, right, there's a, you know, probably, right, there's a handful of plants that can bear that, the brutality of, of a right. valley heat. And so here, but here we have, this is a food source for, for a slew of, you know, again, native and non-native pollinating insects, right? right? And um, here I was thinking, all right, well, yeah, let, you know, hey, we got some money to, to apply some herbicide and, you know, rid this rid these grasslands of this, you know, scourge of yellow mm -hmm. star thistle. Um, but boom, I talked to Jamie Marty and she's like, <laughs> I might think I might rethink it. Mm. Right. Um, and so again, it's this moment of looking at our landscapes and again, we're, 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 we're operating in the valley, in the valley here. So it is an altered landscape and there's non-native species in but there are still native species here who are utilizing non-native species. And so, yeah, I think uh, to maybe just for, if, if you'd like to sort of, you know, some more, a little bit more perspective and just shedding light on, yeah, taking a look at, uh, I mean, it's it's very in light of, um, very similar to the Tamaris example, but um, in that case, we're talking about endangered birds and bats. And now we're talking about something that we don't, really see as much because it's not as big as mm -hmm. our, our pollinating insects. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think um, probably during that converse, conversation, I mentioned that it was a huge shift in my mindset about mm -hmm. restoration even, uh, not just weed management, but also what we're choosing to restore or plant, you know, mm -hmm. in, in our native uh, habitats. Uh, you know, I was a restoration ecologist. That's what I studied at Davis. And, you know, the when I was getting my start, the process of restoration was you go out and you burn a site and mm -hmm. then you let the weeds germinate and you herbicide it mm -hmm. till it's bare earth. And you go out and you drill seed native bunch grasses. Well, and, late, right? Yeah. And if you get you know, cover of native bunch grasses, that's a success. And when I started working with pollinators, um, doing a lot more pollinator surveys with a focus on butterflies and bumblebees, I, it, I felt sick to my stomach, honestly, thinking, oh my gosh, we were part of the problem. We're out there spraying herbicide on these plants that these bumblebees and butterflies are relying on mm -hmm. to complete their life cycle and in their place we're planting bunch grasses <laughs> you know which, which means no flowers exactly yeah. and it just it hurt my soul I have to tell you I just I, I and, and luckily I think today people are at least including forbs and you know flowering mm -hmm. flowers um, mm -hmm. native flowers in their seed mixes, but again, we're not thinking about the needs of the pollinators and that niche, you know, I do a lot of work with the 
uh, candidate bumblebee species. Um, I've been, a lot of it is volunteer work that I do, doing surveys throughout California, but um, I've just started taking on a little bit more work thinking about writing weed, man writing weed management plans and management plans that have a focus on pollinators mm -hmm. and their resources, mm -hmm. resource needs. And I try to get people to understand something like a bumblebee that has an annual life cycle needs resources throughout their season. They need, you know, early season flowers, which we're really good at, you know, restoring habitat with early season flowers. And a lot of the natives that remain in the valley, that's their time, springtime, right? But then you hit the hot summer and all, and you have some tar weeds and some gum plant and a few things, but it's mostly the non-native weeds that are providing the pollen and nectar resources for these bumblebees and they need it for the entire, I mean, that's when they're ramping up their nests. Mm -hmm. And so spraying out a patch of yellow star thistle could mean the you know death of any of the bumblebees that are in that local area. And they can fly to new areas, but once they sure. establish their nest, that's it. Right. If you eliminate all of their resources, they're done. Yeah. And then they also need fall resources. So the new queens emerge at the end of the summer mm. and they have to get a bunch of, you know, nectar uh, to stored. They need a bunch of, um, you know, energy stored in their bodies so that they can survive the winter. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Because yeah, they're hibernating under the ground. So just uh, so I started to think of weed management and restoration in terms of a bumblebee life cycle. Mm -hmm. Monarchs are another great example. You know, they're migrating farther and farther away, but then they come back in the fall mm -hmm. and those fall flowers are just critical. Yeah. And so I spend a lot of my time, even if I'm doing different things out in the field, I'm always observing. Mm -hmm. I want to better understand who's using what mm -hmm. and how we can, you know, improve our management to benefit these species that are clearly on the brink. Sure. Um, and at, at the very least, like, do no harm mm -hmm. because um, I think that's key. And, yeah. and getting over ourselves and, you know, natives are good and non-natives are bad. It's mm -hmm. all about functional landscapes mm -hmm. and maintaining those for the species that are left that we can do something about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that that aspect of functionality, I get. It. It's a perspective shift. It's hard yeah. to, uh, right? Inherently, as humans, we, we want to look at the beautiful painting, right? We want to see. We want to listen to the perfectly crafted song. We don't want. Uh, I should say, at least, it's hard as a a person who's in the line of work. It's hard to look at a landscape that has a bunch of. I mean, I'll use my my quotes. Weeds. Mm -hmm and say that that's good that's beautiful yeah but it is it is beautiful um it's our, it's our new beautiful mm -hmm. um and yeah right the, the getting away from the you need to take a step away from the aesthetic and, and again i think the key word there is, is functionality which um I, you know i look f i i hope i hope to see a lot more you know interesting stories and, and studies and, and projects coming out um, cause again, I think it's going to be hard. It's the, 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 again, the whole non-native versus native, um, trope, you know, it's, that's pretty hard ingrained in there uh, amongst folks. And, um, again, started a podcast to start and try to talk about it. Right. So, um, so there's, there's that. Um, so <laughs> We have been talking for a while, mm -hmm. so I am going, we're going to um, end this with a lightning round oh, of boy. questions okay. that I intentionally didn't provide you <laughs> in advance, but they're not that hard. They're supposed to be fun. Okay. So, um, how many do we have? We have six of them. They're, okay. They're like one, one sentence answers ish. Okay. okay. So because this is a, we're talking about conservation, you're a biologist. What's your favorite bird and why? Maybe not an easy question. Yeah, I would say. But it's, it's got your gut reaction. Loggerhead shrike because That's they. That's mine. Yeah, they leave their menageries. I've just been looking at like Jerusalem crickets on fence posts. Uh -huh. <laughs> just been fascinated. That's I awesome. love them. Um, I have seen a sparrow uh, hung up by under its chin on a on barbed wire, Sweet. and have also seen a bat hung up on oh barbed gosh. wire. 
and the it all in a very close vicinity to a, a loggerhead shrike nest. Yeah. Um, awesome. They're brutal. Totally brutal, but <laughs> and they like and they're but they're so right. They're just they're like a hardcore mockingbird, right? Absolutely. That's, <laughs> yeah. Cool. I'm glad. I'm glad we're on the same page with that one. <laughs> um, this one might be. Uh, well, I'm gonna say don't say the obvious one. What's your favorite reptile slash amphibian and why? Okay, I, I can't I, use the obvious one. <laughs> the, right, the obvious one being tiger, tiger salamander. Or maybe not. That was what I thought you would answer. Yeah. I Yes, of course. <laughs> I mean, they're just so cute. I mean, yeah. I've got a plastic one right next to you right there. <laughs> you do? There. Yeah. Uh, um, that my, could be your answer if you Yeah. Want. My second favorite, I would say, would be a yellow-bellied racer. I, mm. I frequently encounter those snakes, and I just absolutely love... The color patterns, the juveniles. When I first saw a juvenile mm -hmm. um, yellow-bellied racer, I thought it was a gopher snake, a baby mm. gopher snake, until I noticed the coloration on the tail and the big eyes. Um, yeah, I adore them, and cool. I have these chance encounters this time of year with them. So awesome. Yeah. Um, and then the last. So, what's your favorite mammal, and why? Um. That's a tough one. Well, I love kangaroo rats. Okay. Yeah, I, um... Just because they're just so cute? Well, <laughs> but they're, I mean, they, well, actually, let me change that answer. I'm going to okay. say California ground squirrels. Okay. They, I... I like that answer. Yeah, they're not, I mean, I think they're cute, right? Sure. But And most people think they're destructive, but they are everything in mm -hmm. California's grasslands. They mm -hmm. may, They are the engineers that so many that provide habitats for so many other species i'm always in love with um you know california ground squirrels when i see them and see yeah. the some people call it destruction i call it habitat building absolutely yeah. terraforming right terraforming <laughs> ah very nice uh, yeah uh yeah my uh, microscopic terraforming not microscopic but small scale um i had read a study that um, had shown a very close relation between uh, loggerhead shrike and ground squirrel. Because, and in, kind of interesting, uh, because of the um, how much less vegetation grows around their their community sense, there, yeah. um, specifically like using kind of the one that one stock of something as a perch mm -hmm. to be able to scan the landscape and for sure. look for gruesome crickets yeah. or, or or what be it. Um, so there you go. So. And a little interconnectedness there. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and so you had mentioned it. I think you maybe already mentioned the answer to this one is, um, where where is your favorite underappreciated open space or preserved land, uh, and why is it? Your yeah, favorite? I mentioned the Pinoch Valley, yeah. and um, I kind of should stop talking about it because I don't <laughs> want it to become this. I know thing, that's, the, right? that's the yeah exactly. But it is it is stunning. It is okay. just it, it's the the vastness of the landscape now it has a solar you know facility and mm -hmm. but it doesn't seem to matter it's mm -hmm. like it's just such a beautiful and there's it, it's protected land that's surrounded by blm land mm -hmm. and um it's it's just awe-inspiring um and and it's one of these hot spots for endangered species they mm -hmm. you know it's filthy with uh san joaquin kit fox you can drive along the roads and see them you mm -hmm. can you know giant kangaroo rats and blunt-nosed leopard lizards, California tiger salamanders are all very abundant there. They get condors sometimes. Wow. During the winter, it's an amazing place for raptors. And I know a lot of birders that like go on Little Pinoch Road and just do that circuit because it's amazing. Yeah, it's, it is, I didn't know anything about it mm -hmm. until I started working with the Wildlife Heritage Foundation down there and then CNLM and it's, yeah, I, every year I love even, and now there, you can camp on the BLM land. So now mm -hmm. that's like, I started camping there last year. And so, Gosh. yeah, it's my new fun place to yeah. go. It's always the sort of more unassuming areas, the, the less obvious ones that uh, maybe not the most awe-inspiring year-round, but there's those peak moments, right, yeah. those peak times of year where, yeah, they, they rival any any national park right yeah yeah the native plants and the grasslands out there are stunning too so very cool yep um if you weren't a biologist what would you be doing right now hmm 
I would be a volunteer biologist. Oh, <laughs> if I wasn't uh, working as a biologist. A, a volunteer biologist slash a musician. Yeah. Slash maybe something else. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's everything. I, I, I don't um, have boundaries with you know my career. I, I guess what I should say is when I go on vacation, I tend to do biology stuff or Got ecology it. stuff. So it's just it's in my blood. It's what I love, and I would be. I can't imagine doing anything else. All right. Honestly, I have other side hobbies, as you yeah. can see, but yeah, no, nothing. Once I became a biologist, it was all over. All right. I'll do it for the rest of my life. That's awesome. That's I love. Well, uh, in a world where a lot of people maybe don't find their passion, I you, finally did. You are one. Yeah. And that's awesome. Um, and then so the last question is, in what or where do you find hope? Hmm. in the context at least in the context of kind of what we've talked about today yeah i would say evolution or just the ability of species to adapt to new mm -hmm. and changing environments it gives me hope that um you know we can we've screwed things up pretty badly but mm -hmm. somehow they're still finding a way and yeah. um paying attention to that and helping uh species along with that i think is a good thing to think about um and cool. gives me hope that you know we're not going to destroy everything <laughs> sure i think not to discredit that at all but uh in quoting jurassic park right <laughs> life finds a way yeah for sure which yeah. uh, and i don't want it to just be cockroaches i don't think it's no. going to just be cockroaches you know <laughs> at the end awesome well jamie we're gonna um we're gonna close it out here and I, this is a, a wrap on episode one of Very cool. all land is beautiful again we're gonna change the world yeah absolutely good luck Hey guys, this is Marshall. I appreciate you sticking with me to the end and hope that this episode, along with others to follow, may serve as a conversation starter. If you liked what you heard here and would like to hear more, it would mean the world if you could leave a positive review. This helps get the word out and brings more people into the conversation. Thanks and hope to see you at the next episode.